Lucky Land Casino asking people what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? Lucky? In line at the deli, I guess? Aha, in my dentist's office. More than once, actually. Do I have to say? Yes, you do. In the car before my kids' PTA meeting. Really? Yes. Excuse me, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? I never win and tell. Well, there you have it. You can get lucky anywhere, playing at LuckyLandSlots.com. Play for free right now. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Voidware prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Blog Talk Radio. You're listening to Radio Stranahan. Lee Stranahan, thank you. It was a privilege for me to meet you last weekend. You're tuned into Radio Stranahan. And now, here's your presenter, Lee Stranahan. Good afternoon, everybody. Welcome to Friday. You made it. And you're looking well today. This is Lee Stranahan. Got a big show for you today. Big, big show for you today. A couple of guests. Filmmaker Ami Horowitz will be up in the first hour talking about his re- I, I don't think I'm a birther. I don't know. Let's find out if you're talking to Mike. But look, what I also know is terms like that are often terms of intimidation. This ties into about what I'll be talking about in the second hour, which is I'm going to be going over everything that's going on with Russia, how it relates to Syria. This is getting serious. President Obama will be making a presentation today, and I expect Russia is going to be coming up. In fact, that's supposed to be going live in about 15 minutes from now. But fear not. Fear not, gentle listener. Do not worry. There's a reason that I, America's finest reporter, I... Now, there's a fascinating technical glitch for you. No sooner was I talking about the fact that I'll have Mike Zulo on discussing the Obama birth but my phone suddenly cut off for no apparent reason. You think there's something ominous about that? Possible. It's possibly ominous. 
It's weird. My phone's never done that. I switched over. I have a whole nice microphone set up. And when I was first doing this blog talk radio show, by the way, there's something that doesn't happen in terrestrial radio. I'm just going to point that out. Terrestrial radio seldom just cuts off. Once I was in the Breitbart News Studios, and there was a fire or a report of a fire. So we had to stop the show mid-show, but that's rare. Blog Talk Radio, I love it. It's a great format. But, boy, the technical glitches, they kill me sometimes. Anyway, we'll be talking to Mike Zulo later. We'll be talking to filmmaker Ami Horowitz. And what I was telling you was there's going to be this press conference that President Obama is going to be doing. And we will be – I got a prediction. This is the easiest prediction in the world to make. I predict he's going to be talking about Russia. That's what I predict. I've seen this for a week. I've been telling you about it. I've been saying there's something going on here, and it's not what people think. There's something going on here, and it's not just about slamming Donald Trump. There's something going on here, and it's about Russia. And we've seen this pick up and up and up. And again, we'll be talking about this in the second hour. But when Obama does his press conference today, we'll be bringing you at some point during the show. I can't tell you when. I don't know what he's going to say, but I guarantee you he's going to talk about Russia. He's already gotten threatening, you know, vaguely threatening. Have you seen the pictures of Obama on the bike? You know what I'm talking about. He looks like sort of like an awkward Mormon. Basically, he's got his helmet on. You know that picture? I mean, I know he doesn't seem threatening. When you see the picture, if, you see, if you've seen President Obama throw a baseball, you know he's not threatening. There's something non-threatening about the way he throws. I'm not judging. I'm just saying. But he was kind of threatening. <laughs> he is the leader of the free world. He is the president of the United States. For another month or something, but but boy, I've never seen anything like what they're doing to try to discredit Trump a month prior to his inauguration. And by they, I mean the CIA. In fact, I can I can talk about this later, but let me just get this out of the way while we're waiting. This hour, we're going to have filmmaker Ami Horowitz on talking about his assault, trying to cover and expose Islamism. But while we're talking about it, I was mentioning this to my friend Brandon Darby earlier today. Brandon was in a Twitter scuffle. I don't know what the word for that is. A twuffle, I think. It's possibly a twuffle. Sounds a little dirty when you say it. But Brandon was in a twuffle. Let's call it that. It's better than twite. Twite just sounds like I have speech issues. Twuffle. It sounds like Elmer Fudd asking for a lovely piece of chocolate. But Twuffle, he got into a Twitter spat with Evan McMullen. You remember Evan McMullen? The guy who was trying to, supposed conservative, who was trying to make sure uh, Donald Trump, not Barack Obama, he was trying to make sure Donald Trump lost the presidency. 
so he ran trying to take conservative votes against him. Everyone thought that was about Trump. I was talking to Brandon earlier. So Brandon got in this twuffle with Evan McMullen. I'm just going to keep saying, it's, by the way, twuffle, say it with me, won't you? Twuffle. It's a fun word to say. So Brandon was in a twuffle with Evan McMullen where he was mocking him, because that's really the best thing you can do with Evan McMullen. I do it periodically. I did it just this morning. It's fun. Nothing wrong with it. It's fun. And uh, Brandon got into it with Evan McMullen. Evan McMullen said something to Brandon about, well, why don't you go talk to your friends in Moscow? Now, by the way, I know Brandon pretty well. I know him probably, I don't know, you know, his mom knows him better. But there are very few people who know Brandon probably as well as I do. Uh, Brandon Darby has no friends in Moscow. I know it's breaking Breaking news, Brandon Darby does not have friends in Moscow, but it's just true. The dude does not have friends in Moscow. And so this goes back to the intimidation thing. What's going on there is, and they've been doing this to Trump for months, the tool of intimidation they're using, it's like calling someone racist. So what they're doing is trying to intimidate you by saying you're a fan of Russia, you're a Putin fan, you're doing Putin's work, you're a KGB agent, you have friends in Moscow. This is what Evan McMullen did to Brandon. And Brandon, of course, didn't back down. He continued to mock Evan McMullen. But here's the point I want to make about McMullen. A lot of people assumed that the reason McMullen was running was to take down Trump, which he clearly was. But why was he doing it? Well, Evan McMullen claims to be ex-CIA. And as you're going to see when I get into this later, when I get into the details later, talking about what's happening in Aleppo, running you through the history, making you smarter. Oh, I'm going to make you so smart. The second, this whole show. Look, you've already learned the word twuffle, right? That's got, that's got to increase your IQ by about point oh 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 one percent. So I've already made you smarter, but this this episode, you're going to learn so much. Let me just tell you that. And uh, you're going to learn a lot about what's going on in Russia and Syria. That'll be in the second hour. But right now, I got to I got to press the buttons here. So that's a dramatic pause. Right now, we are pleased to have on the line with us filmmaker Ami Horowitz. Ami, are you there? I am here. How's it going, Lee? Yeah, it's going great, Ami. Thanks a lot for coming on. Ami's the filmmaker behind the, I don't know, am I allowed to call it a documentary, or do I have to say it's docutainment, Ami? Tell me. Yeah, please. Docutainment, please. Documentary. Sounds so boring and stuffy. That's not me. There you go. So, So Ami's the filmmaker behind the docutainment extravaganza called You and Me. That's U-N. It's not called You and Me. It's called UN, like the United Nations, and uh, you you can you can check that out. He's also made a number of short pieces. If you look at Ami's work, he was doing uh, great stuff prior to the election. On uh, I saw the video you, uh, Ami, I saw the video you did on the campus of Berkeley, uh, UC Berkeley, Cal, where you talk to people about voting rights, and we're going to talk about you going into dangerous territory today. But, boy, there's no more dangerous territory I can think of than 
the University of California at Berkeley. <laughs> that so, is definitely enemy really, territory for me. Yeah, absolutely. So tell tell us before we get into the story that happened here recently, because I want to get into that. Describe first. Describe you and me for people who may not be familiar with your uh, your work there. Tell us about that, and then we'll then we'll talk about what happened to you recently. Yeah, You and Me was a movie that I we uh, w- released in the summer of 2013 theatrically all around the actually all around the world. Um, I think it was in, we sold it in 14 different countries around the world, and it was essentially you know a, a Michael Moore, for lack of a better example, a Michael Moore style documentary documentment on how badly the UN has failed the world, right? How badly it's failed the world, how anti-American it is, and how literally. Its whole ethos, which was was it was created out of the ashes of, of the Second World War and the Holocaust, to make sure this never happens again. This type of stuff kept get repeated over and over again after its inception, and the corruption and so forth. And so it's me doing these crazy stunts, traveling around the world, trying to expose the hypocrisy of the UN. That's essentially was the first thing I ever did, actually, in in the in the field of journalism or entertainment, and it's kind of launched my career. So you know, that's that's good, I guess. <laughs> Or bad for some and people, got, I suppose. And, well, and you got threatened on that one as well, right? You had a you had a bizarre incident that happened to you uh, in New York, right? Yeah, yeah. I threatened a couple times, but one time in particular, the one I think you're referring to was yeah, it was it was about a couple of months before the release of the movie, and it was already starting to get some hype. And I came out of my apartment building, and there was a guy waiting there with a suit. And he goes, uh, are you Ami Horowitz? And my, my spidey sense started tingling at that point. I'm like, well, what is this guy doing? And uh, I said, yes, I am. So he then said, is, your fa- is, your, is this movie more important than your family? And then with that, he turned on his heel. There was a waiting cab there. He jumped in the cab. So, yeah, that was the, my first introduction to maybe some people in this world are not as big of fans as I am in my own mind. <laughs> Yes. Well, and also, well, it's just interesting. I I wanted to set that up because, you know, we're going to talk about the intimidation you faced recently uh, as well. But I just want to point out that you're clearly no stranger to uh, to being intimidated. You know, you mentioned Michael Moore. You say Michael Moore style uh, style film. I'm one of those people who uh, I well, I know exactly what you mean, which is Michael Moore, despite the fact I find his politics uh, aberrant. He's a great filmmaker and clearly a uh, iconic figure in documentary filmmaking right and and he really sort of changed the nature of documentaries in a way and i think it's great that you're adopting i mean the thing is you can't whatever you think about moore's politics the dude's been successful and oh yeah he like uh, you said it right he, he's re, he's reshaped the the format uh, uh, and the medium of documentary filmmaking uh, you know, and I say docutainment tongue in cheek, but really there is a significant difference between the two forms, and he's really taken that form to truly an art, a, 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 an art level. Uh, oddly enough, Michael and I had had become friends over the process of me making you and me, and we hung out together. We saw some we saw movies together. Uh, he and I became uh, we, we we've dropped out since, but became actually quite friendly during the process of making that movie. Yeah, no, I think that's great. Like I say, I always you know. You're not supposed to do it if you're a conservative, but I credit where it's due. I mean, you can't he, – he's just you, – you can't underestimate the importance of Michael Moore in the history of documentaries. You know, I mean, there are other people 
who you can talk about, you know, who are great documentary filmmakers who changed, you know, Earl Morris or people like that who, who did change it. But what Moore did clearly had a gigantic impact. You wouldn't have a guy like Morgan Spurlock without, uh, without Michael Moore or, or me, uh, me, me. Talk about me. Forget Morgan Spurlock. You wouldn't have me. And that would be the real shame of the whole thing. That's exactly right. The, the tragedy would be if we didn't have, that's what most people say. I didn't want to go with the cliche and say the tragedy would be if we didn't have Ami Horowitz, but sure, let's just go, <laughs> let's just go with that. But uh, no, he, he but is no, the I giant mean, of the, of the, yeah, he's, he's, he's absolutely the giant of the medium. He, he's the Howard Stern of documentary filmmaking. There's no question about it. Yeah. Yeah. And, and no, and I think it's great. I think it's great. You can, I, I think it's great. You, you became friends with him because uh, like I say, I, have nothing but props for the guy in terms of what he's done for filmmaking. Now, again, do you guys talk politics much? You and Mike get into it uh, about issues very much or do you the, avoid the that? The one thing we, yes, but the one thing we avoided is talking about Israel. Um, and we, we try to, we, we try to not talk about politics. Um, I mean, it's not like we're hanging out every single day, but when we did hang out we try to avoid it, but the one thing we would absolutely avoid is Israel. It's the one thing we just, we simply have zero common ground on. And so now why is that? He's a Palestinian supporter, I take it, or? Oh, in, in fact, when, when his first movie came out, Roger and me in the contract, and I believe the contract is online. You can find it publicly. In his contract with Warner Brothers, it specifically says that uh, that Roger Me will never be shown in Israel. That's yeah, that's pretty hardcore. Some, yeah, that's pretty hardcore. Some might some might call it anti-Semitic. Some might say I don't know. Some, some might. Yeah, you know, I, I'm a little. Yeah, I'm careful about throwing around that term. And obviously, I think you know you guys specifically uh, would, would be wary of that of that term. Um, I'm very cautious throwing at that term anti-Semitic. There, there are thresholds to me, and like the reality, he comes pretty close to it. When you start, here, here's my the bottom line for me when it comes to if somebody's anti-Semitic vis-a-vis their their feelings on Israel. If you are going to exclude every other quote-unquote bad actor. Right, and only include the one Jewish state, then you're on the borderline of being anti-Semite. Because if you're not going to condemn North Korea or Sudan or Iran, but you're only going to condemn the Jewish state, and you may think that Israel is the same level as them. Obviously, I, you and I don't. But if you you could believe that, but if you're not going to condemn the other quote-unquote bad actors, then we have a problem. Then there's a problem. If you're only condemning the Jewish state, then there's there's an issue. Yeah, no, I no, I agree. Actually, I, I agree with that. It's a it's a tough line sometimes because you get people who will say, "Well, I'm anti-Zionist, but I'm not, uh, but I'm not anti-Semitic." But I found that uh, you know, it's a, it. Yeah, did, did you scratch the surface on somebody like that, and then you tell me where where you what you end up finding? Yeah, no, that that that's exactly that's exactly right. That's my that's my experience. So now, what happened? So recently. Uh, what, now, what was the film project you were working on that ended up in the in the well? I'll, I'll call it so-called no-go zone because it doesn't say this is a no-go zone, right? That's, there's no there's no sign. Yeah, there's no there's no big sign that says you're entering a no-go zone. Um, so so yeah, so you gave so a little bit of this. So after the movie came out, I've been do, I've been doing these um, these short videos primarily for Fox News, I did one for CNN, uh, some other outlets. 
And uh, they've both been satirical in nature and funny and, 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 and politically biting. So this one was kind of a new format for me, sort of a longer, immersive short. Maybe it's about 10 minutes long, more like a Vice-style um, little short video. And the topic yep, was yep. there's been an absolute explosion in rape and violence going on in, of all places, Sweden. And rape is, has, has actually exp- absolutely exploded over the past 10 years. And I wanted to find out what was the reason. And, and what, what I found was that this rise in rape has an absolute parallel. It has been rising in parallel to their, Im- their, their import of Islamic immigrants into Sweden. And, and, as, you, and as, as the video lays out, and as anyone can see who, who wants to see, um, the connection is, is very clear between the rise in rape and violence in general in Sweden. So I said, I'm going to go there and, and, and kind of figure out what the hell is going on. So we, uh, one thing, we, so you know, it's so funny, you mentioned these no-go zones. And the reality is, there is an actual, if you go on to CNN or NPR or BBC and you listen to these talking heads, there's an actual debate on whether or not these no-go zones exist or whether or not they're the figment of the conservative imagination. And that's a real debate that's happening in our, in our world today. So I wanted to figure out what's going on. And when I got there, the police laid it out very, very clearly for me. They said, and they, by the way, it was the police who, in Sweden, the Stockholm police who I interviewed on camera, who used the word no-go zones. They would say, when we're to the point where we're driving and chasing a suspect, we're in hot pursuit of a suspect, and we cross that, that he crosses that threshold, he says, we stop, that's our policy, not an opinion, not what, my, what I personally prefer to do. The policy of the Stockholm Police Department is you do not cross that threshold. If the police ever want to enter that area, they have to do it with armed convoys, and in their words, using military tactics. That's the only way they'll enter those areas. There used to be a police station there in this one town of Rinkaby, and they had to actually dismantle and move the police station out of the area because it was so dangerous for police to have a full-time presence there. And in their words, these are states within a state. That's the situation that Sweden, of all places, find themselves in today. Now, did you were you able ever able to figure out why the Swedish police don't listen to NPR? Because that seems to be the main problem here. That if if they listen to NPR, they would, they would have ab- carte blanche in these areas. Exactly. That's exactly right. They would have no problem. Now, so it's very interesting. By the way, you made. Let's go back to your uh, uh, dangerously Islamophobic statement that you made before. That there's this rise in rape. Gee, Ami Lee said, throwing you a softball. Um, what's uh, so what's up with that? Because, boy, that's another thing that you're really not allowed to say. You're not allowed to say that there's a connection between rape and the massive Islamic immigration in places like Sweden. So when you say, state that that's the, the reason for it, I take it you looked into it. You're not just throwing that out, right? There's oh, a yeah. you're saying that, correct? Listen, either we could be 100 about this or we could just not. I mean, you know, it's up to, it's up to whoever wants to have the discussion. If you want to be real, let's be real. If you don't, we can, be, we can talk baseball. I can talk baseball and basketball and football all day long, okay? I love USC football. I could talk about it all day long. But if you want to get real and talk about what's really happening, then let's have that conversation. And the reality is that you're bringing in a, a segment of the world's population that I'm sorry, that just simply don't have the same views of women that we do. They just don't. And women aren't treated the same way as they are in Los Angeles versus Saudi Arabia. They're just not. 
And the problem is you're bringing in an illiberal culture into an extraordinary liberal culture, and there's going to be – and the words, by the way, the people I interviewed, there's going to be a culture clash. This is what they told me, and that's exactly what you have. And, and these rapes take many forms, unfortunately. Or you know, there there are the traditional rapes of a one-on-one, and then you have these horrible things going on in these music festivals, where there's women, young women as, as young as 12, who've been raped at these music festivals, where you have a, a group of men, what they call the Tarush attack, and you see them all over the Middle East. That you, a group of men surround their target, in this case a woman, and the inner circle is, is raping this woman and is sexually assaulting this woman, in some cases a girl, and the outer circle is keeping everybody out. I mean, it got so bad that Mumford & Sons, the great band Mumford & Sons, refuses to play in Sweden because the situation is so bad in rape. But the Swedes, here's the bottom line, the Swedes refuse to accept this, like you said. It's not politically correct. And the, the Swedish government has done whatever they can to cover it up. One example of this cover-up I'm talking about is that they're, they're, the keeper, BRA, B-R-A, the keeper of Swedish statistics, crime statistics, used to have in their crime statistics about 10 years ago what the background of the rapists were. And when it became that it was, it was clear that it was something like 65 or 70 percent of all rapists were immigrants into Sweden, they dropped that statistic. You can no longer find that statistic on the BRA website. Because it was so offensive, and 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 you know, I went and interviewed Swedes after you know I've laid out this case in this video. At the end of the video, I'm, I'm interviewing regular Swedes and I'm asking them about this, and they're as clueless and stupid as Michael Rapport in 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 fantasy football. I mean, it, they don't know anything about what's going on. They they are pathological in their denial. Truly, I mean, I'm no psychologist, but if I were, I would call them pathologically in pathological denial. About what's happening. When I said this is what's going on with Islamic immigrants, they say you're a racist, you know what you're talking about. We want to bring in, is, I said, is there a limit? To, and I'm ta- I know I'm having diarrhea of the mouth, so stop me when I'm, when I'm, when I'm gone too far. No, it's great. I said, is, there, I said, is there a limit to how many uh, Islamic immigrants you can bring into Sweden? Is there a limit? And they looked at me in the eye and they said, no, there's no limit. There's no limit to love. I mean, this is what the situation that we're in. Well, you know, I, I faced the same thing. Uh, I, I covered up in Twin Falls, Idaho, there was a rape of a, a five-year-old girl there by refugee boys. And then when I was up there, there was another sexual assault uh, of, and these were all by immigrants who were, who were brought in refugees, brought in under the refugee program. And the town council in Twin Falls, Idaho, they, they may have been Swedish. It's possible. Now, now that you're describing the situation, <laughs> they may have been just imported from Sweden. But it was exactly the same thing. As soon as you bring up the idea that literally, like, look, you're bringing people in from a culture where women are treated 100% differently. Then they come here, and there's Victoria's Secret and bikini at at the mall, which there is, by the way. There's a Victoria's Secret at Twin Falls, Idaho. Uh, It's just – it's a different planet, basically, right? It's a different planet for – I'm not even blaming somebody. I'm saying if you grew up in a culture where women are forced to wear burqas and then you're dropped into a place where ladies wear bikinis, right, uh, it's different. <laughs> and they don't know how to handle it. And even journalists, you saw that in Egypt in a, in, during the Arab Spring, journalists were being sexually assaulted. So the level of denial is frightening. Now, let, let's talk about what happened. You're the kind of guy, when you hear some places in no-go zone, you decide, yeah, I'm going to go I there. Go. Right? That- I hear no-go. Yeah. No-go to me is I go. 
And so, and so what happened? Yeah, so what, what was so, your experience then? So what happened is, so my, I took my Swedish team to this no-go area in a town called Husby outside right in, in Stockholm. It's a, it's a, and the, what the irony is, that, you, you know, people talk about, oh, it's the, the the poverty is what makes them do it. It's the, it's the abject. Okay, it's ridiculous. These are beautiful leafy suburbs that I would live in. They're really, they're they're lovely little neighborhoods that these no-go areas are in, or are. And so we went to this town called Husby. And my team and I, literally once we cross the threshold, a, a, a gang of five uh, Islamic guys walk up to us and they say, uh, you guys have to leave. And uh, my crew, they're, you know, listen, they're, the, the Swedes are no longer, these Vi- Vikings don't exist anymore. So they hear the words, get out of here, they turn around and they took off. I, on the other hand, just wanted to find out why we had to leave this area. So I said, before the words came out, why do I have to leave, these five guys jumped on top of me and started beating the hell out of me. And they were stomping on me, and they were choking me, and they are they're, they're, they're punching me. And it got, uh, and, and you know, this is, I'm in the middle of this little square in this little neighborhood of Hoosby. So I figure that they're gonna, somebody's going to pull these guys off of me, right? They're going crazy. They're trying to kill me. And uh, I noticed that nobody, in fact, people are kind of st- standing there pointing at me and laughing. So I know that I had to figure this out on my own. I was able to kind of get to my knees and I pulled the the closest guy to me by the shirt, and I punched him right in the throat. And that that gave him enough uh, pause to they backed off for just a second, enough for me to get up and run. But the problem was they they kept they were, they were you know pounding my legs so hard that I was all Charlie horsed. They took me down immediately and they dragged me to a building. And this is when I'm thinking it's over. This is where it's, it's going to end. And they dragged me to this building, and um, Thank God, somebody opened uh, an apartment door and it spooked them. And they took off, and and that was the end of the story. I was able to get away. And then, and then you just walked out of there, and then you you got a new crew. I take it after that. You, you no, know. unfortunately, I stuck no. with the same crew. Okay. <laughs> yeah, okay. that was a very uncomfortable next couple of days. And you didn't. I'm just just so you didn't go in like wearing a yarmulke or. No, no, there was no. Nothing. Didn't matter if you're Jewish. No, just you're you're not you're not Muslim. This is not for you. And they just they just could tell immediately of the beards and the and that was sorry it, you, right? you uh, I, what, I lost the again. Yeah, that was it. Yeah, you guys didn't have be- you get you you didn't look Muslim, and so that was no it. that was all they t- that no, was all they took. No, although it reminds me of a, of, a, of a, it reminds me of a story when I was going to interview Islamic Jihad and Janine. And we're, we're, my fixer and I are driving to the, into the refugee camp, and we're getting these hard stares. And uh, the, the, my, my fixer says, listen, you know, he's Arab. He's from, he's from the town of Janine. He says, listen, we're getting a lot of little hard looks. This might be a bad idea. I said, don't worry about it. I said, I grew up my, my facial hair a little bit. My mother tells me that when I grow a little bit of a beard, I, I look Palestinian. He looks at me and goes, in Los Angeles, you look Palestinian. In Janine, you look like he's really special forces. Yeah, which is probably not the way you want to look. That's probably no. That's not. That's not, not a good look. Best, that's not a good look. It's the best look. It so might be a good okay, look at the so bar to Tel you, Aviv. And so, and so, now, how, how does that affect things when you get beat up like that? What, like, what's the next step? Because it doesn't seem like normally it seems like you should be able to call the police, but that was a that was a. Uh, I don't want to use the pun, but that was a no go, right? You couldn't call the police. Yeah. So what do you do? Just nothing. No, nope. you just uh, hope you got something on camera or on tape, and you move on. Wow, wow! And wait, and so did you get anything on tape? 
Yeah, so we had the audio because I was I was lobbed. So we got the audio of it until my crew was out of range because you know a lo- a a lob has um has a it's a it's a it's a wireless mic it's a wireless mic so you have a certain range on it. So we had the audio the first thirty seconds of, it, of the attack and then once they got our range, I got all scratchy and we just lost it. Wow, that's a, that's amazing. We're on with filmmaker Ami Horowitz talking about his experience getting beat up in a no-go zone in Sweden. So what's what's the so you're a storyteller. What have we learned here, Ami? What, what have we what have we learned? What's your takeaway from this? Because it's a frightening, horrible well, experience. But I mean, it, all joking you aside, had, you're right. It, it was an yeah. it was a, it was a horrible experience. But but the takeaway is, listen, I, here here it's very simple. My my golden life, right? If you were to boil down what I'm doing and why I'm doing what I do, listen, I can make a lot more money going back to invest in banking. I can spend more time with my family. I don't put myself at risk. I can earn money. The reason I do what I do is because I don't want our country come like Europe. That is my main goal in life. We don't want to become like Europe. It's a failure militarily, socially, culturally, economically, okay? And I don't want our country to do what Germany and France and Sweden are doing by bringing in um, uh, you know, hundreds of thousands of Syrian refugees. As much as my heart breaks for them, and it really does, okay? It really does. But the moment they leave Syria and they go to Turkey and they go to, and go, they go to Jordan, they're, they're now safe. They're no longer running for their lives. We no longer have a moral responsibility to bring them to the country. You want to send them money? Go ahead. But I don't want to make the mistake, the unforced error that the Europeans have done to import their problems. And that's exactly what they've done. What's happening in Sweden is, is it's something they've done to themselves. They imported their problem literally. And I want to make sure that we understand the U.S. We cannot make, we cannot afford to make the same mistake. I am a product of immigration. I am as for immigration as you could possibly be. So if you are a doctor from Riyadh or from Dubai or from Pakistan or you're a professor and we can vet you and we can understand exactly who you are and where you come from, come to this country. We could use you. But I'm sorry. If you're somebody who we simply can't figure out where you come from, who you are, we just can't do it. I'm, we just cannot do it. And so, That's do you it. think seeing what you saw, seeing the cluelessness that you saw in in Sweden, uh, among not just the city, you know, the citizenry, uh, do you think that comes from the media and the politicians there? Is there any is there any hope in Sweden, or what's it? What would it take to change things? And what do you see it taking here in the country? for people to wake up to this. Because I think, look, I think the election of Donald Trump is a big part of that. And I think the American people um, aren't buying what the media is selling on that story, if that makes sense. Yeah. But what do you, what do you, um, how do you see it? I, I, I don't know if Sweden, I, I, I'm going to be honest, I don't know if Sweden has an answer. I mean, Sweden has brought in something like 200,000 uh, uh, Syrian refugees in a country of 8 million people in the last two years. Uh, and the number are, is much larger in terms of how large the Islamic community is there. Uh, I, I don't know if you can unring that bell, to be honest. I, I really don't. So I don't have an answer when it comes to Sweden. All I know is I'm using Sweden as an example of how I don't want I don't want this to happen to us. That's the only reason why I went yeah. there. I, I, honestly, Sweden is a very anti-Israel country in a lot of ways, anti-Semitic. I don't really give a you know, hoot about them. Uh, the reality is I don't want... 
I don't want our country to become like Sweden. That's the bottom line. Yeah, yeah. Ami Horowitz, thanks very much for taking the time. Fascinating uh, story. And where can people where can people look for your work? Where, where should they go? They can go to, to find Ami out more. Horowitz. Sure, uh, AmiHorowitz.com is the repository of all things Ami. <laughs> That's there you go. There you go. So, Ami, it's great great talking to you, man. It's a uh, Again, fascinating story. Appreciate your passion and uh, completely understand the idea of there's something more uh, at, at a certain point. There's something more important than just making money. Uh, if you feel like the future of the country is at stake, and I completely identify with that. Uh, so appreciate, no, my appreciate pleasure. your passion. Thanks for having me on. Appreciate your bravery. Yeah, thanks. Thanks a lot, Ami. Take care. That's Ami Horowitz, Bye, everybody. Uh, there we go. And uh, wow. That's a fascinating story. It is 37 minutes past the hour. A lot more coming up. Mike Zulo coming up talking about the Obama birth certificate. Other things we're not supposed to talk about. Don't you worry. It's all coming up very soon. And just as soon as I find the bumper to play, here we go. I'll play this one. You're listening to Radio Stranding. By all first mention, uh, Lee Stranahan. He's my friend. Yeah, he got thrown out of the club for reporting stories that were being suppressed. Radio Stranahan. Radio Stranahan, this is Lee Stranahan. Today's episode is brought to you once again by Citizen Journalism School. I want to mention we're still looking for uh, sponsors. So if you want an ad for you here, just get in touch with me. Stranahan at gmail.com or... Stranahan on Twitter. There's, I'm easy to reach. I'm kind of slutty that way. I'm, I'm easy to get in touch with. But today's episode is once again brought to you by Citizen Journalism School. That's where I teach you how to do the kind of journalism that can change the world. What Ami was saying just be, uh, before the break there, talking about how he could go back to being an investment banker, that kind of thing. But he's worried about the direction of the country. I completely empathize with that. Of course, my background was in video production. I worked on the TV show Access Hollywood for about five years as a graphic artist. I was making twice as much money. I know this is not really a good advertisement for journalism, but I'm going to keep going because I was making twice as much money as Access Hollywood as I do as a journalist. But I felt that there was something more important. If you want to make a difference, I can show you how to do it. I can show you the same techniques that I've used to cover stories across the country and around the world including, as you'll hear later, the Syrian refugee crisis. I was one of the first people talking about that, including the student bill rape case, including the Pigford black farmer scandal, including Black Lives Matter, including Occupy Wall Street. All the big stories that I broke into Twin Falls, we talked about that. I can show you how to get the story right, get heard, make a difference. I have a new program coming up called the Citizen Journalism School Mentorship Program, where you can work one-on-one with me, get your questions answered, you can learn to make a difference, and it's a fraction of the cost of journalism school. To find out more, go to citizenjournalismschool.com. That's citizenjournalismschool.com, the popular .com extension. Oh, no, we could have cheaped out and got .net. No, no, no. We went full bore, .com. And you can sign up there for a free course that's called 
create your own media empire. Create your own media empire is where I show you how to get set up. I got to work on that this weekend. I don't have any shows to do. I don't have any consulting gig. I got a ton of stories to write, but okay, I can do that. By the way, the interview that Ami just did, the stuff about uh, the rape in Sweden, that's going to turn into a story on Breitbart. Trust me, that's why I talked to him about that. The whole story is fascinating, but we, we have a good story about Ami that uh, Raheem Kassam interviewed him the other day on Breitbart News Radio, but that'll be up on Breitbart. That's coming up. Go to citizenjournalismschool.com. Sign up for the free course. I'll be sending you an email this weekend, probably Sunday, if I'm realistic about it, because it's the holiday season, and show you how to set up things and make a difference. Citizenjournalismschool.com. That's sponsored. It's me. You're listening to Radio Stranahan. You're listening to Radio Stranahan. Call us. I'm Lee Stranahan. Give us a call if you want to talk. 619-924-0786. Once again, this is an episode full of smart. And full of stuff you're not supposed to say. Omni was a good setup. We have Mike Zulo coming up very soon here on the show. Talking about the press conference that he and Joe Arpaio did yesterday. Talking about Obama's birth certificate. We're not supposed to talk about it. That's the deal. We're not supposed to talk about this stuff. While we're waiting for Mike, I'm just going to play another clip. I played this yesterday, but I want you to hear it. This is set up for what we're going to be talking about later. There's a move right now. Now, let's talk about things you're not supposed to say. I was talking about this earlier in the show. So you know if you bring up black crime, for instance, if you bring up the factual statistics about crime by black Americans, and the fact that the murder rate is about six times as high as it is for white Americans, Six times as high. You're a racist because you're not supposed to mention that statistic. It's easy for me to mention that statistic because I'm not a racist. In fact, by the way, I think the real racists are the people who don't want to talk about that. Because, by the way, most of those victims are black as well. So when we are so politically correct, we're not allowed to talk about facts, just like Ami Horowitz was mentioning just the way they are in Sweden right now. We're that way about the stuff here. You're not allowed to talk about black crime statistics because you're supposedly a racist. I call foo, because it's a word I can say that's not a swear. I call foo, yes, F-O-O. I'm just going to go with that. Fill in the dirty word of your choice there. But I call foo on political correctness. I'd say... Not talking about this sort of thing is bad. Bad is it's bad. It's not bad. It's bad. It's bad for the black community. You see why I got screwed up there? I had alliteration. I had to say bad and then black in the same sentence, and my tongue wouldn't let me. <clears throat> it's bad. And by the way, I'll tell you who else thinks this: black conservative friends who I talked to about this, who in many cases aren't even really. I guess they are conservative, but they're just common sense. It's ridiculous. You don't stop cancer by saying, well, let's not talk about cancer. You stop cancer by saying there's such a thing as cancer and we should do something to solve it. 
And so the intimidation that the left uses is they give you categories of things you aren't allowed to talk about. You're not allowed to talk about black and black crime. And you watch the people from Black Lives Matter are very clear on this. I had the lead story last night at Breitbart talking about how the Kellogg's Foundation is funding this group called Badgy, the Black Alliance for Just Immigration, whose leader is Opal Tometi. Opal will come up. By the way, she connects into this whole thing I'm about to talk about with Mike Zulo and Joe Arpaio because she's connected to a group called Puente in Arizona that was instrumental in helping getting Joe Arpaio thrown out of office and sued. He lost the election. So this is significant. But I love the fact that Arpaio is not backing down. And I actually love the fact that he's talking about the Obama birth certificate, because as you're going to hear, A, we're not supposed to talk about it. Like, this is a subject you're not supposed to discuss. But we're not going to play that. We have a caller on right now. I'll have more to say about stuff you're not supposed to discuss in a minute. Or maybe maybe next hour. Hey, caller, you're on you're on the air. What can I do for you? Lee. Lee? Yes. Yes. Mike Zulo. I'm calling in. Oh. oh, hey, Mike. How you doing? I was expecting you. You called in from a number that I couldn't see, so I, I didn't know. Mike, <laughs> here we go. So let me just set it up. Mike Zulo, I was just talking about, about you, talking about the situation, things you aren't supposed to talk about. Mike, you're basically the lead investigator, correct, on the uh, Obama birth certificate investigation that's been publicized by Sheriff Joe Arpaio from Maricopa County, Arizona. Is that is that accurate? Yeah, that's true. This has been going on since August of 2011. Well, I appreciate you taking the time because I know you're doing a ton of interviews today. And uh, you guys did a press conference last night that you were nice enough to give me the heads up about a few weeks ago. You said, look, we have new information coming, uh, we more analysis coming. And you guys went through and you did a press conference. I actually saw it. I caught a little bit of it. I was on Twitter, and the local Arizona news channel was covering it live. So that was going out on Twitter. So I, I want to get into this a little bit, but I know you don't have much time today because you have to do all these interviews. Can you sort of briefly tell us what, what you went over? Not, not the details, but what you were talking about yesterday. And then I want to talk about how the media has just uh, tried to – suppress this story whether whether people agree with it or not the way they've treated it is not like a factual case they've treated it like uh something you're just not it's radioactive you're not supposed to talk about it so what did you guys go over yesterday mike well basically lee this was the conclusion of a five-year-long investigation into the birth certificate of barack obama that was placed on whitehouse.gov back in 2011 uh 2011 when right before he was trying to run again for his second term. Um, that document, uh, we ended up holding two press conferences in 2012 after investigation and basically calling it a forgery. Well, obviously the media did not pick up on that. We're not receptive to, to it. Did everything they could do to malign the sheriff, myself, the investigation, and the sheriff's office. Well, this continued under the radar up until last night. Um, and in that time, we were able to secure the help of two forensic examiners, one of them in digital forensics over in Italy, the other one, a Reed Hayes, a document examiner, 40 years of experience in Hawaii, 
And ultimately, at the end, what we were able to prove is we were in possession of a document that was actually one of the source birth certificates that was utilized in the creation of Mr. Obama's phony PDF file released in 2011 on whitehouse.gov. Um, we were able to demonstrate with experts confirming the findings that five or six items were picked up in one block off of this source document and pulled right over with a copy and paste fashion into a digital format to create the, the certificate. And we, we proved it. We've proved it beyond a, a shadow of a doubt. The evidence that we proved yesterday is actually courtroom ready. You could walk into a courtroom and use this in testimony. Two independent experts who did not know about each other confirmed the findings. Two different disciplines, two different scientific approaches confirmed the findings. Two document examiners who did not know each other, were not aware of each other, on different continents concurred and proved the findings. The document is a created digital image. It does not exist in real form. It never did. Well, and that was the point well, and, of the whole investigation. And so, and so let's be clear here. Your claim, you're, you did not have a press conference yesterday to prove that Barack Obama was born in Kenya or that he's ineligible to be president. Or That was not – you had a very specific claim that you laid out, which is that the document put up by the White House on whitehouse.gov, that that document has problems that you say prove it was a forgery. That's the, that's the extent of the claim, correct? Correct. We have been saying that since we started this. It was never about the president. It was never about where he was born, natural-born citizen. None of that was something that we were concerned about. What we did is we investigated what looked to us to be a fraudulent document, a representation, mind you, of a birth event, a fraudulently created government document. Those carry severe penalties in the creation and the proffering of those types of documents. And that's what we were focused and, on. Lee, if it was your name on the document, we would have investigated it the same way. And, and the point here is, and the reason, I, the reason I'm emphasizing it, and I think you know why, Mike, is one of the ways, because I, so I actually look into this, um, I think about a year ago. I talked to you, I think, about a year ago. Uh, maybe a little after that, I had talked to Sheriff Joe Arpaio. And I, I'm one of those people, I, I'm an investigative reporter. I take facts very seriously. And so the way I analyze things is, first off, if a claim's crazy, I try to avoid, you know, crazy claims, you know, you need extraordinary amounts of proof. So I went back and I looked at the press conferences you guys did in 2012. And I realized, number one, that the claim you made was not that Obama's born in Kenya or anything. You were making a very specific claim, the same one you're making now. This document is not, is, is a forged document. And then I looked at the evidence. I watched the whole thing that you went through and did in 2012. And then what I did was I went out and I looked for countering the statements that you'd made in your press conference. And I couldn't find anybody who could actually contradict the claims that you made. I found people who misdirected. So they said, oh, well, they claim this. And then, but I, when, I, when I looked at your press conference, I couldn't find it. And I talked to you, and you and I, I don't remember, 
But I said to you, I really went through, I spent about five hours trying to find a contradiction of this or that. Like there's a whole, I don't want to get into the details, but like the way layers work, right? So I saw people who, who would say, well, no, no, layering is, is a normal thing that happens when you create a PDF. Uh, you know, that's normal. But that's not what your claim was. Your claim was the way the layers were split up was not the normal way they would be split up. And I know a little bit about digital imaging. I did it myself. I couldn't find the holes in what you were saying in 2012. But more importantly than I couldn't find it, I couldn't find anyone who was actually being honest about the evidence you were presenting. And I, like I say, I, does that make me a birther? I don't think so. Because, and, and what do you think about this? So you, you think the document's a forgery. What does the, the fact that it's a forgery prove about where Obama was born, for instance? My, my take would be nothing in and of itself. It just proves that it's a forgery. And there's a lot of reasons that could have happened. But what, what's your take on that? Does it, does it conclusively prove where Obama was born, or are you just laying out the facts on this document? Well, I, I I fully agree with you. It doesn't it doesn't lead you anywhere as to where he was born. What it says is, it is very easy to get a birth certificate if you want one. All you have to do is pay a fee and you can get one. You're the president of the United States. You can get one. Hold it in your hand. Declare it yours. And if if question come up, provide affidavits from officials in Hawaii that this is your true and accurate copy and that it's never been amended. And that's an important point we could touch on at another time. But it doesn't prove anything about where he was born. It doesn't prove who his mother and father were. That is not what we were seeking. All we are saying is they put a fraudulent representation of a document that they want you to believe existed in 1961, and in fact it never did. Now, the next logical question is why? I don't know because we're not pursuing that. Our only mandate, our only level of authority to go further in a law enforcement capacity is it's a phony document. That's all we had to prove. And we did it. And well, I'm telling you, Lee, we did it in, in such a way that you can't refute it. And people can, and people can find the full press conference. It's up on YouTube. I caught it today before the show, just going through YouTube. It's up there. People are talking about this, but again, you know, I got to point out, I want to emphasize what, what we said here a couple of times now. You can ask why this is, but let's just start with the claim. What, I, what either that, and you, you make a great point. Why did we have to go all through? You know, people were criticizing Donald Trump. This issue has become radioactive. So it's like Donald Trump had to come out and say, oh, the president was born. Well, that wasn't a claim. But you, you bring up the point. Why did we have to go through this? Why couldn't the president just produce the birth certificate? And why did it take so long? And I mean, you agree with that, right? I mean, that's what caused this whole thing to become controversial, right? This should never have been controversial in the first place. Well, obviously, nobody that has a birth certificate is going to spend millions of dollars trying to stop its production in court case after court case. And in fact, every time those court cases were held, at no time did anyone representing Mr. Obama ever walk in with the actual hard copy document and declare it to be the authentic one. Because the reason why is they could not. 
They came in with things like different kind of certifications, which we can talk about when we have more time, but they never produced the actual document. Well, Mike, I would love to talk to you about I want to get into the details at some point. I know you don't have time today. One final question. I appreciate you taking the time today. What's been the reaction of the press so far? You, you're starting to do interviews. What's the reaction of the press in the last day or two to this? Are you seeing any change, or is it still the same malarkey you got before? Um, it's, it's mostly the same malarkey. I mean, the secondary outlets that aren't the mainstream fake news networks like P.P. Simmons or CarlGallops.com or InfoWars or um, WND, they're reporting the facts. They are putting the press conference out there. Our local media was doing hit pieces as the press conference was going on. Then they wrote stories. The AP is the king of fake news. Their headline is that this investigation has been debunked. I have just provided courtroom-ready testimony, courtroom-ready forensics evidence that it's fake. Nothing is debunked here. And what that's telling you, Lee, this is something somebody's afraid of because this evidence is going to be very difficult for anybody to refute, and they're afraid of it. So it's the same nonsense. It's the smears, the hit pieces, and the fake news reports. And, and Mike, I, I've told you, I mean, I went through, I spent about five hours researching this issue, about five hours, and – all I do is I look at claims and counterclaims. I looked at the claims you were making. I looked at the counterclaims. If there's evidence that this has been debunked, and I haven't seen it, and I'll look into this before we get you back into the show, I'll, I'll, I'll take it to you. I will give you a counterclaim. I'll say, look, they said this, and I know you'll just respond to it, and then people can, can make up their own minds. But I haven't seen it. All I've seen so far in this is distortions of what you were actually saying and distortions of the actual proof. That's all I've seen. But the thing is, how long was the press conference yesterday? About an hour? About an hour. Yeah. So that's the other thing that I think is working against you here in terms of the story is people don't have the attention span, and it's pathetic. People don't have the – I find this – if I have a story that I have to take three minutes to explain to somebody – a lot of people go, oh, well, people don't have the patience for that. And unfortunately, they're right. If you can't sum it up in two seconds, uh, they don't want to hear it. But the reason it took you an hour is because I know your work. You're methodical on this stuff. You're just going through methodically proving your case, and they, they don't seem to be able to disprove it. So, Mike, I really appreciate you taking the time. I know how busy you are uh, today. But any, uh, anything you want to leave us with? No, I'm, I'm going to challenge you. Like, you look into you, I'm going to challenge you. You look into the work we just presented, and you have me on any time. I could address any question, and I will on, answer it honestly. I'm very confident, and I'm standing on the work product. We, we did the work. That's great. Mike Zulo, thanks very much, and we will talk to you thanks, later. Thanks, brother. All right. Take care, Lee. Bye-bye. Mike Zulo. You bet. Mike Zulo, ladies and gentlemen, talking about the Obama birth certificate again. Have we, have we entered into fringe territory here? You tell me. I don't think so, because I don't roll that way. Anybody who reads my work knows I don't roll that way. But I wanted to have Mike on, because when I looked into this story, which is radioactive, you're really not allowed to talk or write about this. Trust me. And the fact you mentioned that InfoWars and WND are covering it and covering it properly, and I believe that, by the way, but that actually benefits the mainstream media in the following sense. When those sources cover it, they love to immediately dismiss the story. 
By the way, Fox News is just reporting breaking news saying that the FBI and the CIA now agree that Russia was involved. I don't know if there's any new information. I'm skeptical if there's any new information, but I'll look into that as well. What I know from looking into it is that I've seen no hard proof. If hard proof is coming, then okay, great, let's bring it on. Oops, hang on one second. And you just heard me say to Mike Zulo, but I'll say it to you too. If you think that there's hard evidence that what Mike's talking about and what Sheriff Joe were talking about, about this birth certificate, if you think that it's true, forgive me, if you think it's not true, feel free to bring it up. Okay, so we have some breaking news here. By the way, you're listening to Radio Stranahan. Hang on one second. got to find the bumper, and it's hard because I'm blind. Hang on, so let's, let's find an appropriate bumper here. One sec. See, again, I'm my own board op, so that makes it exciting. But it's the top of the hour. Here we go. Let's play this one. This is a good one. No false modesty, please, Lee. Forget the Pulitzers. You know, you should be getting a a, a global prize for what you've been doing because it's really something that nobody else has done and and you're really leading the way. Radio Stranahan. There you go. This is Lee Stranahan. The guy Seb Gorka was just fawning over. Seb is obviously a smart guy since he was fawning over me. No, he's a smart guy either way. You're listening to Radio Stranahan. Two minutes past the hour. Okay, hey, Jack, come here. My lovely assistant, Jack, now. Can you find that clip? Okay, so this is breaking. This is President Obama from his press conference. That's what you're about to hear. This just happened. Yeah, go, as go for it. As we speak, is united in horror at the savage assaults by the Syrian regime and its Russian and Iranian allies on the city of Aleppo. Responsibility for this brutality lies in one place alone with the Assad regime and its allies, Russia and Iran. This president attacking Russia in his press conference. That's what we're going to be getting into this hour and taking your calls. Hang on one second. Let me find another. Let me me find the thing from yesterday. I want to find this. So this is the press conference yesterday. I played this yesterday, but I want you to hear it again. This is the press conference from yesterday. Oh, forgive me, two days ago now. This is the State Department spokesman talking about Iran, uh, forgive me, our Syria policy and Aleppo. And then he's asked a question by an AP reporter. Listen to this question and answer. Listen to this. If I can press the button properly. That's my big issue. Hang on. The end of the siege in Aleppo is not the end of the war in Syria. So, again, that's, uh, that's what I wanted to start with today, Brian. So, um, on Aleppo, <coughs> we've heard a lot of moral outrage from this podium, from the secretary, from the, US, the U.N. ambassador yesterday, from the White House. What is, what is the goal of all of this? Uh, I mean, we've been hearing the same message for many months, in fact, for years. Yet, 
nothing has really changed to stop it. So what what is the goal right now of kind of laying all the blame on Russia? What are you doing differently to stop the war now? Well, the the you know you, I I don't know if you meant it. That was uh, uh, an Elmer Fudd moment. That was an Elmer Fudd moment where the State Department spokesman can't answer the question because there is no answer. This is from later in that same press you conference. You failed repeatedly doing the same thing over and over again, which is a combination of trying to bring together people in some sort of talks with uh, a sort of in- imperfect ceasefire and then when things go badly you get really angry and accuse them of war crimes or crimes against humanity and then nothing ever changes you haven't succeeded once that sums it up that's the AP reporter Clapper talking to the State Department spokesman Kirby John Kirby and saying to him look your Syria policy has failed and every time it fails which is constantly, you blame Russia. And now, just now in his press conference, we have Barack Obama. What does he do? Who does he blame? As we speak, is united in horror at the savage assaults by the Syrian regime and its Russian and Iranian allies on the city of Aleppo. Responsibility for this brutality lies in one place alone, with the Assad regime and its allies, Russia and Iran. That's disgusting. So let's go over what's happening here. This is a Syrian city who's been taken over by terrorists and jihadists who are intent on turning Syria into a Sharia-conforming nation, much like Saudi Arabia. Saudi Arabia, the country that's backing the people who are doing this. Play that again, please. What's your, what's your, what the president said again? is united in horror at the savage assaults by the Syrian regime and its Russian and Iranian allies on the city of Aleppo. Responsibility for this brutality lies in one place alone, with the Assad regime and its allies, Russia and Iran. One place alone. Did you hear that? One place alone. There's no sense that these were people who, stu- these were jihadists, the al-Nusra Front, who is in East Aleppo, that's who was in East Aleppo. The people, the Syrians and the Russians were fighting are jihadists. That's who they are. No talk about that. That's the president of the United States. And what he's trying to do, about a month away from his successor taking office, and possibly, hopefully, unscrewing up his horrible policy, he's doing nothing but attack Russia and attack President Trump, future President Trump, before he takes office. That's what he's doing. That's what the president is doing. I'm going to go over for you exactly what's happening here. But here's what we know for sure. Like the reporter said, this has been a failure. You failed, you failed, you failed, you failed, you failed, you failed. That's it. That sums it up well. The only other person who could sum up our policy in Syria better, there's only one person who could sum it up better, it's Willy Wonka. You get nothing. You lose. 
racer. That's exactly right. You tell him, Willie. Willie, I think, summed it up very well there. This is a you lose. Because first off, the Russians and the Syrians won. And what did they win? They won their own city. By the way, why were they bombing? Because it's a city filled with terrorists and with Sunni Muslims in that city who were backing the terrorists. Because the Sunni Muslims want to take over. Who's behind them? Saudi Arabia. This is all misdirection from Saudi Arabia. All the talk about the Russian hacking and everything else, it's misdirection from what's really going on, which is we were on the wrong side of the Syrian war. There may not have been a clear right side. I am no fan of Bashar al-Assad. And by the way, that's a stupid thing to have to say, because who's a fan of Bashar al-Assad? Is there such a thing? I don't think there's such a thing. I mean, Bashar al-Assad's a fan. But it's not, it, you don't have to be a genius to go, well, that Middle Eastern dictator has done some things I don't like. That's a pretty fair bet. It's a, it's a pretty safe bet that if you throw a dart, let's say you had a dartboard covered with pictures of Middle Eastern dictators. I'm not just talking about the, oh, they're all of them. Pick, pick any of them. By the way, that's a good dartboard to have. I'm just going to point that out. That's, if you're going to have a dartboard, that's one of the better ones. Right now, we have a Democrat party who their dartboard is pictures of the Trump cabinet. And right in the middle, right in the bullseye, who's that? It's, it's, oh, look, it's Steve Bannon. That's their dartboard. But I'm saying, if you get the dartboard you should have, which is the dartboard of Middle Eastern dictators, and you throw a dart at it, and by the way, if you do, throw it hard. If you throw a dart at that dartboard, it's not going to be hard to say, oh, hey, that random Middle Eastern dictator I picked, all whatever, right? Al Lewis, whatever, whatever one you pick. Now, forgive me, Al Lewis is a Middle Eastern dictator. He was grandpa on the Munsters. So I may have my facts a little wrong there. Al Lewis, not a Middle Eastern dictator, but grandpa. But yeah, look, if you do that, you're going to have some problems with them. So it's ridiculous that I have to say, almost pleading with you, oh, please believe me, I don't agree with Assad on everything, because I don't. But I'm going to point that out, because you have to. I could, I could make a blanket statement. By the way, Al Lewis is pretty cool. I actually met him. That dude was okay. Look, if we could get a Syria policy where Al Lewis could have taken, oh, he's dead now, but we lost him. So that possibility for a peace settlement is over. But it was a while ago I met Al Lewis, i got to say. By the way, same party, I also met Scotty, James Dewan, TV Scotty from Star Trek. There you go. So it was a good party. Uh, the point, though, my friend Christina was at that, I, I, Christina was at that party. She's got stories. But here's the point. Because there is a serious point here. Through all this 60s TV show trivia, there is a serious point here. Bashar al-Assad is a bad guy, but he's the best option we had. And this country has been on the wrong side of the Syrian civil war. We've been supporting the jihadists. And we've been supporting them because they're backed by 
Saudi Arabia. And there's no question, and I'll get into this in detail in a minute, but there's no question whatsoever that we have ended up aiding the jihadists largely at the behest of Saudi Arabia, our supposed ally who admitted the Saudis have now admitted. I've told you this before. I make you smarter because I'll let you figure out stuff on your own. Go Google it. Go to the Google right now. Run to the Google. You can keep listening. You can do both. It's called multitasking. But if you run to the Google and you type in Saudi Arabia, we misled you. Misled is one word. It's not misled like with two S's. Misled is a uh, is the world's it's the world's worth beauty contest the winner of that misled it she narrowly beat out miss copper but my point is if you google saudi arabia we misled you spelled misled properly m-i-s-l-e-d you'll find the article politico not a right-wing nut job source not breitbart not wnd not Infowars, not that none of those and the saudis admit that they were funding terrorism it's beyond any doubt, and have been funding terrorism since prior to 9-11. Remember 9-11? Instead, we have an administration that for eight years has supported the jihadists. And when it comes to, to Syria, again, I think Willy Wonka said it best, didn't You he? get nothing! You lose! Good day, sir! That's what we'll be saying, January 20th. It's a big good day, sir. 50 minutes past the hour, it's Lee Stranahan. You're listening to Radio Stranahan. We're talking about the stuff you shouldn't be talking about. Just let's go over what we've talked about today. Islamic rapes, you're not supposed to talk about that. You're not supposed to talk about Obama's birth certificate. Nothing there. You're not supposed to talk about it. And now we're getting into Russia, Syria, and Obama's disgusting statement. It's again, quarter past the hour. Feel free to call in. Talk to me. Let me know what you think. You're listening to Radio Stranahan. Call us. Number to call in 619-924-0786. That number again. 619-924-0786. Before I get into my whole big rant and I take your calls. Look, it's Friday. You should be calling in. Look, we we had two great guests today. We got a lot on the plate here. I, I you know, you can call in, you can make a comment or you can ask a question. If there's something I can clear up, I'll sure do that. Because I think Kurt Schilling said it best. I'm just going to play this bumper and then I'm going to sell something. But let me let me play this bumper first. I think the great Kurt Schilling said it best. Here's what Kurt said about me. Uh, Lee Stranahan, great part investigative reporter who is, well, just knows everything. Radio Stranahan, it's all good. It is all good. You're listening to Radio Stranahan. This is Lee Stranahan. So before I get into this long rant, hang on one second. My lovely assistant, Shane, 
I have two lovely assistants, Shane and Jack, and they're both strapping young men. They're both taller than me. I'm destined to be the shortest person in every family photo. I have a four-year-old who is actually taller than me. That's the strange thing. That's usually because he's jumping off of something, but that's fine. One second. Shane's just watching. Shane, what's going on? Are you still working? Or? Yeah. Okay, Shane is still. You're monitoring the press conference, correct? I'm monitoring the press conference. I'm trying to stay in the audio. Okay. Shane is multi. Remember I mentioned multitasking before? Okay, go right ahead, Shane. You're, you're free. I didn't know that was still going on. Shane, this is how we're working diligently to make you smarter here. Shane is both monitoring the Obama press conference and as he's going, grabbing stuff in real time, editing it, posting it, posting anything that's good or useful, and then we're going to come back and play it for you. But before we get into that for the rest of the show, I'm just going to mention once again Citizen Journalism School. Citizenjournalismschool.com. I'll, I'll keep this one short. Go over there, sign up for the free course. Build your media empire. If you have any interest in helping me spread the truth, I said this, I was talking about this on Twitter last night. Look, I think I can change the world with a few dozen great reporters, about six good editors, and two or three fantastic platforms. That's it. But they have to, it has to start from the ground up. You have to start from people who know how to do journalism right. And that's why I started Citizen Journalism School. I have no lesser goal than to change the damn world. That's the goal. That's the goal. And if you want to be part of it, go learn with my free course, Build Your Own Media Empire, that will show you how to get started, how to create the pathways you need so you can do your own journalism Get the story right. I'm going to show you everything I know about research in the full course. In Build Your Own Media Empire, I'm going to show you how to set up what you need so you can start broadcasting using audio, video, text. Text is popular, particularly among people who can read. That's the way that rolls. Citizenjournalismschool.com. Go over there right now. Sign up for it. And once again, I ain't too proud to beg. I'm going to play the call us. I got to get a new call us thing. I build all these little uh, bumpers. So I'm going to play the call us one again. But before I do, I'm going to remind you, go to citizensjournalismschool.com. Sign up for the free course. You're listening to Radio Stranahan. Call us. Okay. Lee Stranahan, Radio Stranahan, making you smarter every single day, except Saturday and Sunday. Because on Saturday and Sunday, you probably, you don't really need to get smarter. It's the weekend. Just enjoy yourself. Have a beverage, something like that. 619-924-0786 to call in. 619-924-0786. So as I've mentioned, I went to... Beirut, Lebanon, in September of 2013. And everybody in the past few days is talking about Aleppo. In fact, Barack Obama's talking about it. Hey, Shane, Jack. I, by the way, I have so many kids, it's very hard to tell them apart. Jack is here. Jack. It's also confusing because Jack is wearing Shane's baseball cap. So it's very tricky. That's one way you can tell them apart. 
Shane had the pink baseball cap, and now Jack's wearing it, so it's very hard to tell. I think Shane has the goatee, and I think Jack is 15. So I think that's the difference. Okay, just play that Obama clip again, Jack. As we speak, is united in horror at the savage assaults by the Syrian regime and its Russian and Iranian allies on the city of Aleppo. Boy, I hate this guy. Responsibility for this brutality lies in one place alone, with the Assad regime and its allies, Russia and Iran. Yeah, I beg to differ, Mr. President. Now, look, I went to Beirut in 2013, September 2013. I'm going to backtrack a little bit here. I'm going to start to go through this timeline with you and make you smarter about the whole thing. So I want to remind you how we got here. And, and Jack, stick around. I want you to play a clip in a minute. So let's remind you how we got here. So President Obama takes office. He's elected in 2008. He takes office in 2009. A few months later, he goes to Egypt. And he delivers what's called the New Beginning speech. The New Beginning speech, he basically gave the okay for uprisings in the Middle East. Now, one of the ways he did that is he had sitting in the front row was members of the Muslim Brotherhood. The Muslim Brotherhood is an Egyptian group long outlawed in Egypt. In fact, at that time, it was very controversial that he had them sitting up in the front row because they were essentially outlawed. The reason they've been outlawed is they keep trying to overthrow Egypt. The Muslim Brotherhood is a hardcore Islamist group. Let's define our terms here. Islamist means you're in favor of political Islam. It doesn't mean you're Muslim. Not all Muslims believe in political Islam. Not all Muslims want to impose Sharia law. By the way, Bashar al-Assad, the head of Syria, is an example of that. Bashar al-Assad is a Muslim. He's an Alawite Muslim. He's a Shia Muslim. But he's not trying to impose Sharia law. An Islamist, an Islamist, an Islamist, you believe in political Islam, you want to enforce Sharia law. Saudi Arabia is an Islamist country. You with me? And in the broad spectrum of things, it's a Sunni country as opposed to countries like Iran or Syria, which are Shia countries. Now, the Sunni country thing is important. In fact, the Saudi Arabians are a specific type of Sunni. They're a hardcore fundamentalist Sunni known as Salafist or Wahhabist. Where does the term Wahhabism come from? Again, you may, I'm going to make you so smart here you may want to take notes. But the Wahhabism, the, the, the term Wahhabism comes from Wahhab. It's a name. And this connection between Saudi Arabia and Wahhabism goes back actually to the 1700s. I'm not looking at my notes. I want to say 1739. I think I'm right, but I could be off by a couple of years. But in the 1700s, the House of Saud, you got to remember, there was no Saudi Arabia. This is 200 years before it was formed. There was no Saudi Arabia. But there was the House of Saud. And they were Arabs in the Arab Peninsula, but they did not yet control 
the area that's now the kingdom of Saudi Arabia. They were effectively, and I don't even mean this, I don't even mean this in a negative way. They were effectively camel jockeys at that point. I don't mean that in a negative way. It's 1739. There weren't cars. They couldn't drive Mercedes. There were no time machines, right? So it's not incorrect to say that they were, if I call a cowboy a horse jockey, that's not an insult. That's what they were riding. So the House of Saud married into Wahhab. Wahhab was a religious cleric who in the 1700s believed that Islam was too modern. Let's go over that again, shall we? Because it's important to point out. He believed, Wahhab believed that Islam was getting a little too modern, and that was in the 1700s. So I think you have an idea where he's going. He wanted to stop modernity or modern stuff. That's the other way. Modernity, I think I'm saying that right. That's one of those words that always puzzles me. But uh, modernity, is that it? I think I'm saying it right. Modern stuff, let's just go with that. Not a big fan of that. So when I say this is a fundamentalist Islamic belief system, that's how fundamentalist they were. So this alliance between the House of Saud and Wahhab goes back, well, close to 300 years now. I guess we're getting close to 300 years. Not We're about 20 years away. I don't know if they have a whole holiday they do about this. They might. I don't know. But anyway, it goes back to the 1700s. So now let's cut fast forward. 1900s, 1932 in particular. Now, what's happened? The House of Saud has now taken over a huge chunk of the Arab Peninsula, including the cities of Medina and Mecca. Now, again, a little more Islam history for you here, in case you're not up on the Islam. Medina and Mecca are the two holy cities of Islam. They're the two holy cities because the Prophet Muhammad, who's the key religious leader, the founder of Islam, lived in Medina and Mecca. And in fact, the in the Quran, those are separate sections of his life that are talked about, Medina and Mecca. So those are the two holy cities of Islam. And now the House of Saud, with the help of the Muslim Brotherhood, by the way, and it's a little more complex there, because the Muslim Brotherhood, who are the Bedouins, helped them take over the Arab Peninsula. And then, after they took over the Arab Peninsula, the Saudis uh, killed them. They got a fatwa issued, because you're not supposed to kill another Muslim. But they found some imams, they found some Muslim clerics, who said, well, yeah, in this case, you can kill them. And so they issued a fatwa. They issued a commandment, basically, a reading of the Quran that said, well, well, in this case, yeah, yeah, kill them. And we've seen this pattern repeated over and over and over again. When they can't do what they want to do, they go to the religious clerics, and the religious clerics always seem to find an out. Like, well, yeah, you can kill. You're not, you're not normally supposed to kill innocent people, but the way we read the Quran, yeah, okay, yeah, you can do it here. So that's what happened. 
And again, this has happened over and over again. And it's important to understand the history. So now, in 1932, Saudi Arabia declares the kingdom of Saudi Arabia, the Saud, the House of Saud, forgive me, declares the kingdom of Saudi Arabia. Okay? Now, what happens next is significant. They declare the kingdom of Saudi Arabia. Now it's the country that we know as, know, know as the kingdom of Saudi Arabia. And in 1933, they strike oil. So up until this time, there's a lot of sand and uh, camels, and I believe hummus. I'm not looking at my notes, but I believe there could have been hummus, possibly some pita bread involved, but no huge piles of cash. By the way, it's 30 minutes past the hour you're listening to Radio Stranahan. Shining the light of truth on liberal America. Hey, that's a bright light. Radio Stranahan. This is Lee Stranahan. You're listening to Radio Stranahan. I'm making you smarter by going through the whole history of Saudi Arabia. And this is all going to lead up to what we're dealing with right now with the war in Syria with Russia. That's where we're headed. So. I want you to understand how Saudi Arabia gained its power. 1932, they declare the kingdom of Saudi Arabia. 1933, they discover oil. Now, I don't know if you're familiar with this, but oil is apparently a popular product. Cars are just coming in. That that helps. So they discover oil, and within a few decades... Saudi Arabia is filthy, stinking rich. And so are the other countries in that area. For purposes of clarity, I'm leaving out com- countries like Qatar. I'm leaving out countries like United Arab Emirates. I'm just focusing on Saudi Arabia. Although Qatar, for instance, is a big player in what's going on right now. I'm leaving out these other places. But just for now, let's focus on the Saudis. Because the Saudis are a huge player. And by the reason, the reason they're a huge player is because, as I, as I said, They control the cities of Medina and Mecca, and why is that a big deal? Because, as you may have heard, every Muslim is supposed to, it's the duty of every Muslim, if they can, to visit Mecca once in their life for what's called the Hajj. Not to be confused with Haji, who was a character on Johnny Quest, the cartoon, Don't confuse those two. I know it's tricky. But the Hajj, every Muslim is supposed to go to Mecca. And so that gives the Saudi Arabian government tremendous amount of power. And also a good tourism industry. I've got to point out, when it's your duty to go someplace, that means people are going to go. I don't know if they sell T-shirts or mugs or keychains. But it does give Saudi Arabia quite a bit of power. Okay, so in 1933, they discover oil. They become wealthy. In 1962, the Saudi Arabian government starts the Muslim World League. The whole purpose of the Muslim World League, and this is a going concern now, this still exists now, the whole purpose of the Muslim World League is to spread Islam throughout the world. And now, in 1962, they got a bunch of money. Right. Also, they're trying to fight Nasserism. This is in Egypt. 
That's a, another component of what was going on. But they wanted to spread Islam throughout the world. And in particular, they wanted to spread Wahhabism, which, as I pointed out, the state religion of Saudi Arabia and a deep connection that goes back to, one second, Shane is just burst into the room. Shane, what do we have? Just what, We're going to play it, but. Okay, so Obama talked about his inability to sleep. And he's been supporting the moderates. So, so this is great. So let's, let's cut the history. We're going, to, we're going to pause it here for a second. This is a breaking clip from President Obama's news conference just going on. Shane burst in. He did burst in, too, didn't he, Jack? Jack, Jack knows. So let's play. This is a two-and-a-half-minute-long two clip because all of this history, I'm trying to give you the background to tell you how we got where we are because the Saudis are backing what's going on in Syria. Let's listen to this clip, Jack. This is President Obama. I'm hearing it for the first time myself. So with respect to Syria, what I have consistently done is taken the best course that I can to try to end the civil war while having also to take into account the long-term national security interests of the United States. And throughout this process, based on hours of meetings, if you tallied it up, days or weeks of meetings, where we went through every option in painful detail with maps, and we had our military, and we had our aid agencies, and we had our diplomatic teams. And sometimes we'd bring in outsiders who were critics of ours. Whenever we went through it, the challenge was that short of putting large numbers of U.S. troops on the ground, uninvited, without any international law mandate, without sufficient support from Congress, at a time when we still had troops in Afghanistan and we still had troops in Iraq and we had just gone through over a decade of war and spent trillions of dollars and when the opposition on the ground was not cohesive enough to necessarily govern a country and you had a military superpower in Russia prepared to do whatever it took to keep its client state involved. And you had a regional military power in Iran that saw their own vital strategic interests uh, at stake and were willing to send in as many of their people or proxies to support the regime. And in that circumstance, unless we were all in and willing to take over Syria, we were going to have problems. And that everything else was tempting because we wanted to do something and it sounded like the right thing to do, but it was going to be impossible to do this on the cheap. And in that circumstance, I have to make a decision as President of the United States as to what is best. There you have it. This President Obama talking about what he sees they've done in Syria, I see it pretty darn differently. 
There's a few points that could be made there. The one that jumped out at me, and again, I'm hearing this for the first time, is where he talks about how there wasn't anybody there who was cohesive enough to uh, govern. I think that's the phrase he used, cohesive enough to govern. Let's point out what that means. I'm going to translate that for you because I speak fluent Obamese. There's a minor of mine in college. But I speak Obamese. When he means coherent enough to govern, he means he had no clue who would take over the country after they kicked Bashar al-Assad out. And when that's a stunning statement from Barack Obama, a stunning statement, because our goal, our explicit goal for years in the Syrian civil war was that Bashar al-Assad had to go. So that's the president of the United States, leader of the free world, commander in chief of the armed forces, admitting that they had nothing. They wanted Bashar al-Assad out, but they were willing to create a power vacuum, which invariably would have been taken over by groups like ISIS and al-Nusra, which we'll talk about in a second. So there's Barack Obama lying to the American people, you know, eloquently, semi-eloquently. My friend Christina hates it when I say that Obama's a good speaker because she doesn't agree. And, and I think Christina may be right. In retrospect, I've thought about that, and I, I don't think he was good. He's not that great. He's no Donald Trump. Let me put it that way. By the way, I just said that to see if actually liberal brains would explode. I think I can hear them popping across the country a little bit. As soon as you say Donald Trump's a good speaker, that just sets them off. So let's keep going with the history here. So in 1962, because it's going to lead to where we are today, in 1962, they formed the Muslim World League. In 1963, the Muslim World League starts its expansion into the United States of America and Canada with a group called the Muslim Students Association, or the MSA. The MSA still exists on college campuses across the country. Now, you got to remember, the Muslim World League's goal is to spread Islam, and not just any Islam, but one specific type of Islam. And in the goals of the group, the Muslim World League, when they formed in 1962, and it's still up there, one of their goals is to combat in Islam. And their goal is as clear as it can be. It's to spread Islam throughout the world and to defend Islamic people in countries where they're minority, make them the majority, and put in Sharia law, just like they have in Saudi Arabia. So Saudi Arabia has Sharia law, which is why they have beheadings in public squares, which is why women aren't allowed to drive, which is why they have stonings of women. This is Sharia law. And it's unbelievable that liberals somehow are okay with this. They don't understand who's going to be first against the wall if they get what they want. Progressives have allied with the Islamists because they both hate America, and they both hate the West, and they both hate freedom. But let's be clear. Let's be clear about what the sides are in Syria right now. You've got Bashar al-Assad, 
You want to talk about a moderate Muslim? And by the way, if you want to talk about why moderate Muslims aren't that awesome, Bashar al-Assad is a good example. He's a secular Muslim, and that's why they want to overthrow him. I'll come to that in a second. So you have the Muslim Students Association, and their goal is to spread Islam. And from the Muslim Students Association, you get groups like ISNA. You get groups like CARE. You get all these other organizations that came out of that. But their goal is to spread Wahhabist, fundamentalist Islam. Now, what I tell people on this, and again, don't take my word for it. Every major terror group today, I'm going to go over them. Al-Qaeda, they're Wahhabist. ISIS, they're Wahhabist. Al-Shabaab, the Somalian terrorist group. They're Wahhabist. Al-Nusra, the group who'd taken over East Aleppo. The Army of Conquest, guess what? They're Wahhabist. The Army of Conquest is the group who was in East Aleppo. They're Wahhabist, Salafist, Sunni Muslims. That's why they're backed by Saudi Arabia. They want to overthrow. And by the way, you notice the media is not telling you any of this. The media wants to make you dumb and compliant. The media seldom, listen to the show. How often do I tell you to look things up, to Google it yourself? How often do I give you clues? Because the way I make you smarter is by showing you that you can look this stuff up yourself. And by the way, I know when I tell you to look up something, you might go in a direction that I wouldn't go, or you might see a link. I'm not trying to hide anything from you. I want you to figure out what's going on. Here's what's going on. A Wahhabist fundamentalist Muslim country, Saudi Arabia, has funded through billions of dollars in propaganda, through groups like the Muslim World League and the Muslim Students Association. They spent more in this country. Listen to me while I tell you this now. Saudi Arabia has spent more on pro-Islamic propaganda in the United States than the Soviet Union, the commies, who I hate. Saudi Arabia has spent more money on pro-Islamic propaganda in the United States than the commies who I hate ever spent on propaganda in the United States. And they spent a lot because the commies who I hate, the Soviet Union spent a lot of money. They spent a lot of money. They controlled the U.S. Communist Party. They were deeply involved in the 60s radical movement. Deeply involved in the 60s radical movement. But Saudis have spent more. They spent more promoting Islam. And the reason they did it is because it's been successful. Look what they've done. They realized they couldn't defeat us with an army. So what they've done is they've weakened our defenses against Islam. It's about 15 minutes before the hour, 45 minutes past the hour. You're listening to Radio Stranahan. Call us. Number to call, 619-924. What's the number? 0786, is that it? 
619-924-0786. You'd think I'd remember it by now and not rely on my failing eyesight, but no, that's not how I roll. Shane has once again burst into the room. I think I think the door is off its hinges at this point. Oh, no, wait a minute. No, that's just the door is open. Forgive me. So, Shane, what do we have here? Just shout, shout it out. Okay. Wait, here's what we got. He wrote in a big thing. Here's Barack Obama on support for moderate forces and Russian responsibility. This is, again, this is from the news conference Barack Obama is giving as we speak, making you smarter by keeping you updated. Here we go. Play that clip, Jack. I have not heard this yet. Uh, what I can tell you is that the intelligence that I've seen gives me great confidence in their assessment that the Russians carried out this hack. But I'd, I'd make a larger point, which is not much happens in Russia without Vladimir Putin. This is a pretty uh, hierarchical operation. Wait, that was that stopped playing though. It has been our view that the best thing to do has been to provide some support to the moderate opposition so that they could sustain themselves and that you wouldn't see anti Assad regime sentiments just pouring into Al Nusra and Al Qaeda or ISIL. That we engaged our international partners in order to uh, put pressure on all the parties involved uh, and to try to resolve this uh, through diplomatic and uh, political means. I cannot claim that we've been successful. Uh, and so of course you can. That's something that, as is true with a lot of issues and problems around the world, um, I have to... Uh, go to bed with every night. Well, so do we. So this is the President of the United States once again blaming Russia and pulling Putin in, not because he's got any hard proof. Let's go over this. This is disgusting. Not because he's got any hard proof. Here's his argument. Well, I agree with the assessment that the Russians were involved in the hack, which, by the way, there's no proof of. And if there is proof, present it. I missed the part where Barack Obama held up the pieces of paper or said, uh, we'll be releasing on our website today. Increasingly, Barack Obama sounds like Mike Milligan from the Fargo season two series. Hello. So maybe it's vice versa. But the point here, there's no point where Barack Obama held up something and he said, this swath of papers, here's the evidence. Here's the proof we have. They have no proof. And his argument for bringing in, they're pushing us to the brink of war, folks. That's what they're doing. And his argument is, and quote, uh, not much happens in Russia without Putin. Well, you know, a lot of stuff happens in Russia without Putin. I don't know if you know this. That's like saying not much happens in America without Obama. Lots of stuff happens without Obama. There's no proof whatsoever, and Julian Assange said this, I believe yesterday on Sean Hannity, may have been the day before. There's no proof a Russian may have been involved. There's no proof the Russian government was been involved. And I haven't even seen proof that the Russians, a Russian was involved. 
Guccifer too says he's Romanian, or says he's Eastern European. He hasn't said that. He seems to be Romanian. So there's no proof of any of this. But let's talk about why this is going on. So let's let's just go forward to history. So we have billions of dollars in Saudi propaganda and marketing. We had Terry Strada on earlier in the week. Great interview with her. I got to write that up for Breitbart. Terry Strada was on, and she was talking about how the Saudis are currently spending $1.3 million a month to keep themselves from getting sued over their support for terrorism of 9-11's families. The families of the 9-11 victims want to sue Saudi Arabia. Both houses of Congress passed it. The president, the president you just heard, who's having trouble sleeping at night, how does he sleep on this one? He vetoed that bill. And as I pointed out in that episode, when I, in my interview with, with Terry Strada, representative of the families of the victims of 9-11, who is currently trying to gut that bill so the Saudis can't be sued? John McCain and Lindsey Graham, the ambiguously Republican duo. John McCain and his longtime companion, Lindsey Graham, are trying to gut that bill. And John McCain was given a big donation, his foundation, a big donation by the Saudis. And when local news tried to interview him about it, he wouldn't answer to it. Now, let's fast forward on this stuff. So now, we have this Saudi influence. We have billions of dollars. We have Saudi Muslim World League trying to spread Wahhabist Islam. That's all they're interested in spreading. Barack Obama gives the green light in 2009 with his new beginning speech. And soon, the Arab Spring uprisings start. They start in Tunisia, but they quickly move to places like Egypt. In Egypt, what do we do? Hosni Mubarak. Throw that dart. Not a great guy. He's got some problems. But what he was replaced with was worse. We help, with Barack Obama's help, to kick Hosni Mubarak out of Egypt. Who takes over? The Muslim Brotherhood. The Muslim Brotherhood goes in and wants to put Sharia law in Egypt because that's what they believe in. The Muslim Brotherhood, an Islamist group, wants to put Sharia law in Egypt. In Libya, we get rid of Muammar Gaddafi. Again, bad guy. Lockerbie bombing, bad guy. But guess what? It creates chaos. Now, let's cut to Benghazi. With Gaddafi gone, pro-Sharia groups, and by the way, who was responsible for the attack on the embassy in Benghazi? Was it a pro-Sharia group? Let me give you a hint. The name of the group who attacked in Benghazi was Ansar al-Sharia. That may give you a hint. By the way, when you've got Sharia in your name, you're probably a pro-Sharia group. So now we're in Benghazi, Libya. And who's involved in Benghazi? The CIA. In fact, the embassy where Chris Stevens and Sean Smith died. I'll come to the other two in a second. I'll come 
to Doherty in a second. I'll come to Woods in a second. But the embassy house itself was a sham. The whole point of that operation was the annex. That's where Doherty and Woods died. Doherty and Woods were special op guys who were working there with the CIA. And what the CIA was doing, and those guys are heroes, but the CIA, I have some questions about. What the CIA was doing was picking up weapons. And according to numerous reports, but of course they don't admit this, we're sending those weapons into Syria. And by the way, you can look this up yourself. We have a division in the Army whose job it is to go to battlefields and pick up weapons. Now, the Benghazi attack foiled the Obama administration's plan and the CIA's plan to fund the Syrian rebels. Because what happened is, with the attack on the consulate in Libya, suddenly there's a lot of tension focused on it. And since they also attacked the CIA compound, which we know happened, the jig was up. And so they couldn't get more weapons into the hands of the Syrians. It really ended up hurting the U.S. effort. And by the way, who's behind what's been happening in Libya? Forgive me, not Libya, Syria. Who's behind it? Saudi Arabia. Who's behind the group al-Nusra? You heard Obama. Now, his excuse is, well, we were supporting the moderates in Syria. There were no moderates in Syria. There were, and why would we do that? Why would we go against the Saudi Arabians? Saudi Arabia pushes Sharia law. That's what they believe in. They're Wahhabist, fundamentalist Islam. That's who they are. Why would Saudi Arabia want to push the moderates? They don't. Why would we go against the Saudi Arabians? We wouldn't. I forgot one important part of the history. Back in the 1970s, high to the oil crisis, President Nixon sends William Simon to Saudi Arabia, and they end up buying hundreds of millions of billions of dollars in treasuries with all the money that they have. And so they become a big investor in the U.S., and they have those holdings to this day. And you can find that. Look that up. Go to It's a Bloomberg story. Look up Bloomberg, Saudi, Nixon, Petrodollar, Simon. Try that. That should point you to that article from earlier this year. It points out how we're indebted to the Saudi. Shane has just burst in again. So we're indebted to the Saudis. That's important to understand. So why would we want moderates? Shane, what do we have here? Let's see what this is. Okay, so this is more Obama talking about Russian responsibility. This is from his press conference going on right now and talking about fake news. Well, this ought to be good. If fake news that's being released by some foreign government is almost identical to reports that are being issued through partisan news venues, then it's not surprising that that foreign propaganda will have a greater effect. It doesn't seem that far-fetched compared to some of the other stuff that folks are hearing from domestic uh, propagandists. There we have it. The president now bringing in 
fake news to talk about foreign propaganda. Look, the propaganda is what you're being fed by the mainstream media. That's just a fact. The propaganda, the fake news, is what you're being fed. The media is not – have they told you what I've told you just in the last half hour? Have they ever explained what Wahhabism is? Have they ever explained the connection? I like to point to mainstream media sources like Bloomberg on some of this stuff. But what they do is they give you one dot. Now, the news organization that I work for, Breitbart, I'm not going to sit here and tell you that Breitbart's perfect. I may be. I can't speak for the rest of Breitbart. I'm pretty darn good. But what I can tell you is we've done a better job of bringing you the truth than these supposedly mainstream legitimate news sources. Play that Aleppo clip. We only have a couple minutes left. Play the Aleppo clip. This is what I told you about Aleppo in 2013. This is what I said. I'm going to close the show with this. This is what I told you about Aleppo. This is Lee Shanahan reporting from Beirut, Lebanon. Another important city to understand in Syria that's been a battleground is Aleppo in northern Syria near the Turkish border. Now, Aleppo is important because it used to be an industrial city. In fact, it had sort of become a very, very nice place to live. I've interviewed a number of people who were from Aleppo. And uh, they said it was great, beautiful, had restaurants, shops. And it was a target for the U.S.-backed rebels, the Free Syria Army, al-Nusra, and the other loose coalition of rebels have basically taken over Aleppo. And with al-Nusra, even with the... That's what I was telling you back in 2013. We have to end the show now. You can find the whole clip on YouTube. I'll post it on my Twitter feed. I've been telling you the truth for three years about this. President Obama is lying to you right now. I'll talk to you next week. Until next time, Lee Stranahan. This is Radio Stranahan. With the Lucky Land Slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. This is your captain speaking. Uh, we've got clear runway and the weather's fine, but we're just going to circle up here a while and uh, get lucky. No, no, nothing like that. It's just these cash prizes add up quick. So I suggest you sit back, keep your tray table upright, and start getting lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandslots.com. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details.